All right. Morning, everybody. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there. And let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We give you praise, Lord, for another opportunity to be in your word. I just pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we look into the book of Daniel once again. Thank you, Lord, for this this book. Thank you for the examples that we have of these godly men. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we look um, at an example of a man who was not godly this morning. And just pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we study through this. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to just understand your word. Thank you, Lord, uh, for all that you are, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel 4. In the last three chapters, or I guess I could say the first three chapters, we've talked about some godly men, um, godly youths to be precise. In chapter 1, we saw Daniel and his three friends introduced, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but depending on which, which group of names uh, you like to use. But we saw them take an uncompromising stand against incredible pressure in an, un, in an impossible situation as they were taken captive and put into a Babylonian brainwashing program for three years. In chapter 2, we saw those same young men put to the test with their lives at stake when they needed to either interpret a dream or die along with the other wise men of Babylon. In chapter 3, we saw just the three companions of Daniel as they were faced with a choice to either honor God, remain faithful to him, and face a certain death by doing so, or bow down to a false image and save themselves, and we saw them choose to honor God even if it cost them their lives. In these three chapters, we saw different examples of godly men behaving as they ought to behave, behaving in ways that we can look to and hopefully pattern our lives after as believers in Jesus Christ, knowing that they were able to behave the way that they were, um, even in these impossible situations. But that's not all that we've seen in these chapters. For every hero, and we might refer to them as the heroes of the story, there's also the antagonist. And in the first three chapters of Daniel, the antagonist has been a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter one, it was Nebuchadnezzar who wanted these young men to be put into the brainwashing program where they were supposed to eat the food and the wine that they could not eat. According to the law, they could not eat the food that Nebuchadnezzar presented to them. In chapter two, it was Nebuchadnezzar who told the wise men, either tell me my dream and its interpretation or face death. You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into rubbish heaps. And that sentence carried down to Daniel and his friends as well. In chapter 3, it was Nebuchadnezzar who built a golden image and set it up on the plain of Dura and commanded the leaders of his kingdom to fall down and worship this image of gold that he had created. And if they didn't worship that image, they would be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. In these three chapters, we've seen the character of Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen predominantly his anger. He was a hothead. He had a temper, and when he let his temper flare, he made some very rash and very foolish decisions. But we've also seen something else about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man. He was the king of Babylon. 
He was an important man. There's no doubt that he was an important man, but he knew that he was an important man. In chapter 1, he took captives for his personal service. In chapter 2, he was willing to commit mass murder because his wise men couldn't satisfy his wishes. And in chapter 3, he made all of his most important people, everyone coming in from around his kingdom, the highest officers in his nation, bow down and worship an image, really, that represented himself. And that's a pretty proud attitude to have. Those are the acts of someone who is very comfortable with their sense of self-importance. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had no problem with his self-esteem. As far as pride goes to the world, pride is seen as something that's virtuous. It's seen as something to be coveted. You go to schools today, TV shows, books, the workplace, Facebook, social media, whatever, wherever you want to go to get your sense of what's going on in the world, and it is all filled with people telling us to be proud of ourselves, to be proud of our accomplishments, to have a sense of pride in everything that we do. We are taught today at every turn that we should consider ourselves to be great, to be wonderful, to esteem ourselves, and we need to take care of our lack of pride in ourselves before we can turn our attention outward to deal with others. With the world preaching this to us at every turn from every angle, it is hard to combat against this. It's sometimes difficult for us, even as believers, to think that this can be all that bad. And we think, maybe I do need to be a little more proud of myself. Before we get into our text in Daniel, I want us to see a few reminders of what God thinks about pride. Turn with me over to the book of Proverbs, in the eighth chapter of Proverbs. Surprisingly enough, God has a different opinion than the world does on the issue of pride. If you look at Proverbs 8, down in verse 13... It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate, it says. To fear the Lord is to hate evil and lumped right in with evil, pride and arrogance is listed right there because the Lord hates them and the Lord hates them, that is something that we should hate as well. Turn over to chapter 11 of Proverbs. In verse 2. Of Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, what comes after it? Dishonor comes after pride. Wisdom comes from humility, not through pride. The next one doesn't pull any punches. Turn over to chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 5. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And this gives you an idea of God's view towards pride. Look down at verse 18 of Proverbs 16 while you're there. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride is followed by destruction. The one who elevates himself is headed for a fall, is headed for stumbling. And one more in Proverbs. Look over in chapter 29. Proverbs 29, verse 23. 
It says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Pride will bring a man low, but humility will bring him honor. These are not sayings that you're going to hear taught in schools today. If you look, none of these verses are posted around on the walls in here. Pride, you're not going to hear it in schools, you're not going to hear it at work. You know, there's business workshops that people go to today that that, that preach these things. Um, Even in many churches today, you won't hear lessons taught on these types of verses, on pride. Pride is not a virtue. As the world would have us believe, pride is a sin. Turn with me over to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll just look at one more verse. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Peter says there, he starts off with the verse with, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And then he says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So whose side is God on? The proud or the humble? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is a problem. Pride is a sin problem. We don't need to be teaching it to our kids. We don't need to be encouraging that attitude in them any more than we need to be encouraging them to be teaching, or, uh, sorry, to be selfish or to be lying. And we don't need to be exhibiting it in ourselves. We should not be thinking about pride other than in the sense that we should be trying to get rid of it. Instead, we should be concerning ourselves with humility. That's the lesson that we see throughout Scripture. If we are to boast, what does Paul say about boasting? Boast in the Lord. He says that more than once. He says that in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He says that in Galatians. Our boasting is to be in the Lord. If we are proud of anything, it ought to be in what the Lord has done for us and what he is able to do through us. So this is the lesson that we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 4, if you turn back to Daniel. The lesson that a prideful man, King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, the king of kings, this is the lesson that he's going to learn firsthand. He's going to learn this the hard way, a very hard way, as we'll see throughout this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has been shown twice already. In in three chapters that we've looked at, he's already been shown twice, twice that we know of, twice that Daniel has recorded for us, that God is the one who's in control. That God can interpret the dreams that no one else could interpret. That God could save his servants out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands and a fiery furnace. When Nebuchadnezzar asks the question, who can save you out of my hands? The answer came back, God can save us out of your hands. These were extreme events in chapters 2 and 3 that should have made a lasting impact on the king, that should have made the king take notice and understand who God is. And I I might add another observation to that. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar just had these experiences to tell him who God was. If you think about it, what was Daniel's role in the Babylonian Empire? He was the second in command. Remember, we saw him put in that role at the end of chapter 2. 
He served in the king's court. He was right there with the king throughout his time in service. And by most accounts, the events that we're going to see here as we look in chapter 4 are toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the end of his life. This is most likely some 30 to maybe 35 years after the events of the fiery furnace that we saw in chapter 3. So knowing that, knowing that where Daniel's position was, knowing who Daniel is, and knowing how much time has elapsed, with Daniel being second in command and being right along the king for 30 years, do you think Daniel and the king ever had a chance to talk? And if so, knowing a little bit about the character of the man Daniel, do you, do you think Daniel may have told the king about God at some point in time? I think there's no doubt in my mind that Nebuchadnezzar had, quite, had learned quite a bit already about Daniel's God by this point in time. I'll bet that Daniel would have unloaded everything he had, every chance that he got. Now, I'll admit that's speculation on my part, but you can decide for yourself if you think that that fits with what we know about Daniel. But my point is that by this point in time, by the time we get to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had plenty of opportunities to understand who God is, to understand and to know all about the power of God. So Daniel chapter 4 is a prime example of what we see in 1 Peter 5, 5, that God is opposed to the proud. And just so you know, we're not going to get through the whole chapter today. We'll get through about the first 18 verses today, maybe half the chapter. And we'll have to save the rest of our chapter for our next time together. But in this chapter, we're going to see the proud man Nebuchadnezzar humbled before God. We're going to we're going to see him brought down to his knees. In the last three chapters, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar witness the power of God. In chapter 4, we're going to see him experience the power of God. And as a testimony to that experience, we have the first three verses of this chapter that serve really as an introduction of what's going to happen. So look at verse 1 of Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Now the first thing that I notice when I read this verse is that Nebuchadnezzar is not Daniel, and Daniel's not Nebuchadnezzar, right? The book was written by Daniel, so why here does chapter 4 start off with Nebuchadnezzar saying something, speaking something? Because these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar that are recorded for us. This is a, the account that Nebuchadnezzar is, is telling us of what happened to him. Well, how is that possible? Why does Nebuchadnezzar get a chapter in the book of Daniel? Well, it will become clear as we go through the chapter, but what we have here again, is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned, the lesson that he was taught by God. It's a lesson for the world to hear, Jew and Gentile alike, and one that pertains to everyone. And we need to take note of what Nebuchadnezzar learned through um, his experience here in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is the object lesson for us, and so God uses his decree to be written down for us. So Nebuchadnezzar is decreeing this Throughout his kingdom, he's letting everyone in his kingdom know exactly what happened to him. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't an inspired writer, but the decree that we see here was written down by Daniel. Daniel recorded this in scripture. Daniel was an inspired writer. 
And God has moved Daniel to record this decree, which makes it relevant for us. It means that it's a very important decree for us to know. Some have a problem with this. Some would say, well, why does Nebuchadnezzar again get to write this? Why do we have this recorded from Nebuchadnezzar? But if you really think about it, it's not that uncommon for people that weren't inspired to have something recorded about what they said in Scripture. Moses records things that Pharaoh said, right? I mean, we, we get record of that. The Gospels record the things that Satan said to Christ. So not every word that is recorded in Scripture was specifically written by God, but God moved men to record the things that he wanted to be recorded. And this is an example of that. But there's also another thing that I think we can consider here. When Nebuchadnezzar made his decree, and this is not really controversial, but there's a lot of questions around this on either way. When Nebuchadnezzar made this decree, there's a possibility that he was saved. I say, I say maybe a possibility because, quite frankly, I don't know for sure. And I don't know if anybody that knows for sure. But if you remember in our last study in chapter 3, I said that I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement of God at the end of that chapter is an indication that he became saved. And in that context, that's true. But now, again, in chapter 4, we are over 30 years removed from what happened there. And Daniel has been in Nebuchadnezzar's confidence for that entire period of time. And so any number of things might have changed for him, including the way that the events that are recorded in chapter 4 are going to end up affecting him. He might have actually come to saving faith through what we see here in chapter 4. There are writers who are split on the issue. Some say no way. Others say yes, absolutely. And others are saying, kind of like I'm saying, maybe. It might have happened, but we don't really know. But it could go either way. But it's important to note that Nebuchadnezzar does seem to have a change of heart from his experience here. And there's no indication, one way or the other, that it wasn't a genuine change of heart. But I'll say this, as we go through this, whether or not this had a lasting effect on his life and led to true repentance or not, the lesson that we learn from what goes on here is really the same. It's God who is in charge. It's God who is sovereignly in control of the world, and the king of Babylon seems to recognize that here at the end of these events. So he starts off here, verse 1, with a very common greeting to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. This is the king speaking to his people. He's speaking to the sum total of his empire. And there's really not a lot to read into this because it was just a standard greeting. Along with what followed, he said, may your peace abound, or peace be with you. Uh, uh, We're familiar with the Jewish greeting, shalom, or peace. This was really just a common greeting phrase at the time of the king addressing his subjects. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, speaking in the first person, and this will be the common theme throughout this chapter. This is his personal testimony of these events, because he has seen firsthand the signs and the wonders of God, the signs and the wonders that God has done for him. This is something that he wants to reveal. This is something that the king wants to share with his entire kingdom. So what's he really doing here? He's he's giving us an introduction. He's preparing us for what is coming next. He's telling us what he's going to tell us, basically. 
And he's revealing what these signs showed to him. Look at verse 3. He says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generations. This is what God proved to him. This is what he was shown by God through these events. From the events pertaining to this dream, which, which we'll see, I'm giving it away, we haven't talked about a dream yet, but I think you know. But from the events pertaining to this dream, this is what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize. God's kingdom is everlasting. His dominion is from generation to generation. The thing that's notable here is that no longer is Nebuchadnezzar focused on his own kingdom or his own future. But now he is proclaiming the sovereignty of God's kingdom to the world instead of his own. And this is quite a transformation for him, quite a change in philosophy that could very well, again, be an indication of a changed heart through salvation. So that's the setup. Now, what is the declaration of the signs and wonders that God has done for the king? Well, look at verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, with this statement here, he's not just talking about what he was doing one night when this all began. This isn't him saying, I was taking it easy at home one night, like we might start a story of, or a, an account of something. What he's doing here is he's describing the overall situation of his kingdom. This is the state of the kingdom of Babylon at the time that this all happened. And this is important to note because it adds to his sense of pride and arrogance at the time. What we see really, really through the next 27 verses is that Nebuchadnezzar is quite pleased with all that he's accomplished. He's soaking in all the benefits of a world-ruling empire, and he's taking all that credit to himself. The word for at ease, which we see him use here, means to be at peace or free from fear. There is no danger to Babylon at this time. There are no enemies that can threaten her. And furthermore, not only was the kingdom free from fear, but it was flourishing, it says. Literally, it was growing green. So at this time, Babylon was enjoying a period of great prosperity. And things couldn't have been growing or couldn't have been going better for the king. And there's a, I think there's a message of caution uh, that we should take note of here when, when, when we see Nebuchadnezzar's situation. Just, just about the time that we get comfortable in our own lives. When things are going really well and we don't have a care in the world, I think usually it's right about that time that we tend to, I'll use the word forget about God. And I don't mean forget in the sense that we forget who he is or that he exists, but we can sometimes forget to give him the credit for what's going right in our lives. When things are going really well for us, and we have blessings in our lives, sometimes we tend to take that a little bit upon ourselves rather than be thankful and grateful to God for that. Unfortunately, for many Christians, we remember to go to God when things are going wrong. Usually when something bad happens, we're right there. Lord, you know, I need help. Lord, I'm crying out to you. But we forget sometimes to thank him when things are going right. And that's just not always our first thought. Now, at least at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer. 
Before all these events happened, he, was, he wasn't about to give credit to God for this time of prosperity in his life. But as we talked about, he certainly had enough signs over the years that you could, sh- that you could say he should have known better. He was without excuse. And for us as believers, we can definitely say we should know better. We are without excuse for not giving credit to God for all that we have. So we should live our lives in appreciation for what God has done and is doing through us and not take credit for things on our own. So this, so this is the setup. Back to Daniel. This is the setup. This is the situation of things in Babylon at this time and with Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now in verse 5, we see what happens then. He says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Now we get into a little bit more familiar situation. The king has a dream that makes him fearful and that alarms him. If you remember back in chapter 2, what happened there? The king had a dream that alarmed him. It disturbed him. It woke him up from sleep. And really we see the same type of thing going on here. He has another one of these dreams. He has another dream, another sleepless night. And the king is apparently a creature of habit. Because he then does the same thing that he did before when he had the previous dream. Verse 6. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So he calls in the wise men. The ones who were supposed to be good at interpreting dreams. Remember we talked about that last time. They had books. They had, this was supposed to be their thing. Now, there are a couple of different ways that that we can look at what's happening here. And our first thought is that he went back to the same, I'll call them losers, the same losers who couldn't interpret the dream before. He calls them in first. Because as we'll see in just a moment, Daniel's going to come in later. He doesn't apparently come in with with this first group. And you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't he just call in Daniel? Why, Why does he call them in and he doesn't call in Daniel because you know we saw in chapter one that Daniel had been given the ability by God to interpret dreams and in verse two that was proven to the king so many people ask again why does he do this but I'm not so sure that he doesn't call them in first and call Daniel in later I think he calls for the wise men and Daniel just doesn't happen to get there when the other ones come in Because if you remember, Daniel was one of the wise men. He was the chief of the wise men, actually, at this point. He was the boss, and I think that it's likely that he was just on his way, and he just wasn't the first one to get there. There could have been a little bit of, you know, the Chaldeans again being, oh, when the king calls, we got to get there before Daniel so that we can prove ourselves again. I mean, maybe they've probably had bitterness for the last 30 years against Daniel. But either way, they get there first. And in verse 7, we see that this same group as before is the, is the group that gets the first shot at this dream. Verse 7, Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. So really, again, we have the same group as before. The, the, the different groups, um, the different areas here that they represent uh, of worldly wisdom are presented here. Right. This, again, is a mixture of, of people that have a kind of a spiritual angle, the occultic angle, world education angle. Or they're all represented in these groups that are listed here. 
Because um, if you think about it, at this, group, at this point in time, all those groups are really the same thing. We separate it out. We wouldn't say that the occult is part of the education system, but back then it was all wrapped in together. So every element of wisdom would have been seen as having elements of a supernatural favor from the gods, high education, ability to communicate with spirits. They lumped them all in together. So once again, all these groups come in. They are still operating. They still have a role to play in Babylon. And I'd say it's possible or probable that Daniel really probably didn't spend a lot of time with these guys. At least I would kind of hope that he didn't spend too much time with these guys. Um, Because really, they didn't have all that much in common. The king may have seen them all as belonging to the same class of people. But Daniel knew that the gift that he was given by God wasn't anything like what these other guys were doing. And perhaps why, that's why he didn't come in with them. Maybe he wasn't in the same group or the same area that they were. But in any event, they all come in, and the result really is the same as it was before. They have no ability to help the king with his dream. And there's two things to note here about this verse. One, the king does not ask them to relate his dream to them. If you remember back in chapter 2, we talked about how the king, there's, there's um, discussion on whether the king couldn't remember his dream or whether he just didn't tell them his dream. And, and I said that I believe that it was that he couldn't remember his dream. And there's some debate over whether it was he was just testing them or not. But, um, so that was one of the things that he had asked them to do back in chapter 2, right? Because he didn't tell them what his dream was. So he said, not only do you have to interpret the dream, you have to tell me what the dream is. But now, in chapter 4, he doesn't do that. And I think the reason is because he remembers it. He knows what his dream is. And, and he's not really after testing these guys like he was before. He just wants the dream interpreted to him. So he knows what the dream is. He come in and he tells them his dream. Because he wants the interpretation. He's after the interpretation. He's not looking to play games and see if they really have special abilities. He wants them to tell him what his dream meant. And another thing to note about this verse is that, again, this is some 30 years later. Remember, 30 years since the last group of events. Their abilities had not grown over that time frame to be able to do this. They couldn't do it 30 years ago. They hadn't learned anything in 30 years to be able to do it now. This is a dream from God. There was still no earthly ability that could decipher and explain the things of God. And you know what? That was true then, and that's that's true today as well. Understanding the mystery and the wisdom of God is not a matter of human wisdom. It's not a matter of education. It's not a matter of deep thinking. Understanding the things of God is a matter of the Holy Spirit giving us understanding into his word. And that's what was going on with Daniel. The the Spirit of God was giving him understanding into these dreams. It wasn't just Daniel coming up with this on his own. God gave the dream and God gave the interpretation. That was dreams back then, and I'm not saying that God gives us dreams today, but even as we study God's Word, our understanding of God's Word is a matter of the Holy Spirit giving us understanding into it. Um, Paul clearly defines that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the, the Paul, where, where Paul tells us that the natural man, the man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, 
cannot understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him. And that's why here with these so-called wise men, they are unable to interpret the king's dream once again because God didn't reveal that to them. But after they get a shot, in comes who? They, they come in, Nebuchadnezzar tells them to dream. They can't reveal it. So then in comes Daniel. Look at verse 8. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and to, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Finally, in comes Daniel. Remarkable timing, because it's God's timing, right? I don't think it's any... I, I don't think there's any... Uh, uh, you get to be my age, I can't, I can't think, of, think of it. Thank you. That's exactly the word I was trying to come up with. I don't think it's any coincidence that, that Daniel came in late in this, because it gave these guys time to show their foolishness once again to the king. And then in comes Daniel. Um, so it's no accident, it's no coincidence. Once, we, once again, we have God giving the wise men chance to fail before Daniel comes in. So Nebuchadnezzar here makes it clear to whom he's referring to. Right? He talks about, he calls him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. And he also calls him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which is named after um, Nebuchadnezzar's god, Bel. And so there's no question to who he's referring to. If you remember, if, if Nebuchadnezzar is giving this to all of the people in his kingdom, then it makes sense that he's making it clear who this guy is. Right? The Babylonians would know him as Belteshazzar. All the Jewish captives would know him, and, and others might know him more as Daniel. So there's no question as to who's called in here. Both the Jew and Gentile would know. And he says that he was indwelt by a spirit of the holy gods. And this, this could be that he's simply recognizing that Daniel had some supernatural ability that the others didn't have. Or it could be that he recognized that Daniel had the power from his God that others didn't have. But there's really no way to know for sure what he was saying here, but I, I tend to think that he's, what he's doing is he's contrasting the name given to him by the king, associated it with Bel and the power that actually resided in him. Almost as if the king knew at this point in time that Daniel wasn't getting his, his ability from Nebuchadnezzar's God, he was getting it from someplace else. So in verse 9, we see him start to relate the dream to Daniel. So in verse 9, O Belteshazzar, king or chief of the magicians, let me start over. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. He, for, he refers to him as the chief of the magicians, which really shouldn't be taken as anything more than calling him the head scholar. It wasn't that Daniel practiced magic or that the king thought that he did, but that he was seen as the chief scholar or the wise men. It's interesting to note that Nebuchadnezzar had complete confidence in Daniel's ability here. He had the spirit of the holy gods and no mystery baffled him. The king had relied on Daniel enough over the years to realize that this wasn't going to be a problem for him. He knew that I mean, maybe with the whole situation before, maybe he thought, well, I know Daniel can tell me. I'll give these guys a shot and see if they're up to the task. No, they're not. Okay, now I bring in my A-team. Um, but either way, he has confidence um, that Daniel is going to be able to do this. So starting in verse 10, we see the dream related to Daniel. 
He says, now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. So in the middle of the earth, in his, in his dream, in the middle of the earth, there's this tree. And he says that the height was great. A great big tall tree sitting right in the middle of the earth. Well, how big was it? Well, verse 11. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So as he's watching this tree, as he's seeing this great big tall tree, he's watching and the tree actually grows. It becomes bigger, it becomes stronger. And it eventually became so big that you could see it, it says, from the end of the earth. That's a big tree, right? It reaches so far into the sky that it could be seen for miles, many miles. If you ever take a trip, if you ever take a trip down to Colorado, when you're driving down I-76 and you're getting towards Denver, you get a frame of reference for this when you start to see the mountains come into view in the distance. You could be 100 miles away from the mountains, and yet you start to see them rising up in the distance. I mean, you can, you can, see, you can see mountains. When we lived in Colorado, on our way home from church, we would drive south of Denver down towards Castle Rock, where we lived. Off to the south, standing up by itself, you can see Pikes Peak. And we were 60 miles away, 50 or 60 miles away from Pikes Peak, but you can see it just rising up, almost standing alone all by itself, look like, looking like it's just standing there. But as impressive as those sights are, I take it that that would seem puny, actually, compared to what Nebuchadnezzar was seeing here. Because when you see the mountains from the distance, you, you still look up at the sky, and you think, you know what, the sky looks great and huge, and you can see it spread out in front of you, and you just see these little mountains they look little, they're huge, you know they're huge, and you're seeing them from hundreds of miles away, or a hundred miles away. But they don't look all that big. But Nebuchadnezzar here, what he's talking about here, seems like what he's seeing is something that far distant rising up even further into the sky. And so into the, in the king's dream, this tree went into the sky and it could be seen from absolutely everywhere. There was no question wherever you were looking at it that this tree was there. It had grown in prominence and strength to this level. And so he goes on in verse 12. It says, Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. So before we saw the strength and the prominence of it, here we see the prosperity and the provision that comes from it. The tree was responsible for, for providing food to the world, basically. That's the picture that this is conveying. All that lived on the earth found their home here. They found comfort, peace, security, provision in this tree. Now, don't get too caught up in the fact that it's only talking about birds and animals. This is a picture of complete provision that we're getting here with this. And it extended to the whole world. And again, I would take it that, like we talked about in chapter 2, it doesn't mean that Babylon reached the four corners of the globe, but as the power of the known world at this time, Babylon was the kingdom that was in dominance. 
and in control. So the picture is set. And by the way, what did Nebuchadnezzar say about his own kingdom back in verse 4? He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Babylon was at peace. Babylon was flourishing. That's a similar picture that he's talking about here. And the, and the reason for that is that this basically, what he's seeing in this dream is the visual representation of that statement that he'd made. And now in verse 13, the action comes in, right? So now we've set it up, we see the tree, but now the action comes in verse 13. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. Now stop there. At this point, the dream wasn't too bad, right? It's a beautiful dream. This is a nice, peaceful dream to have. You have a nice big tree, birds, everybody eating from it, provisions. Um, So it's a very peaceful, nice dream. But the peace is disrupted, And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Now, all of a sudden, there's a disruption to the peace and the tranquility of his dream. An angelic watcher descended from heaven. An angel comes down and starts shouting, I'm having a nice peaceful dream. And here comes this angel shouting in my dream. How rude is that? It's going to scare away all the birds and the beasts. Actually, more than that's going to happen, but look what it says. Chop down the tree. This is what the angel says. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So here's this nice serene scene, and the angel comes down and says, destroy it all. Cut it all down. And don't just chop down the tree, but cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, throw away the fruit all over the place. And then, as if that wasn't enough, scare all, the way, scare all the animals, all the birds away. Make sure they all scatter. So there's nothing left of this peaceful scene. It's all to be taken away and removed. But there's an interesting twist that we see in verse 15. It says, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the, grass, in the new grass of the field. So what do we have here? The stump of the tree is to be left alone, along with its roots. They aren't to be touched. All else is to be torn down and scattered, but not the stump or the roots. In fact, there's to be a band of iron and bronze put around uh, the stump. And most likely, it'd be a picture of a fence, it being fenced in uh, to, to protect this stump. It's to be protected with the two strongest metals that existed at the time, so it's well-protected. And more importantly, with the roots still in the ground, what would that indicate? That it would still be alive, right? It's not dead, it's still, it would still be alive. And that's significant. We'll see that when we get to the interpretation of the dream. Now, something interesting happens here at the end of verse 15. It says, and let him, and let him, wait a minute, you note the change here. All of a sudden, this tree isn't an it anymore. The tree is now a him. So we get a little indication of where this is going. What happens to him? It says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the, new, in the grass of the field. Uh, I'm sorry, beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The tree is a man. 
And this man is going to be drenched with dew, it says, and he's going to share with the beasts, and his mind is going to be changed from a man's mind to a beast's mind. This man is going to act like and think like a beast, and this is going to happen to him for seven periods of time, it says. And we'll talk about that uh, more the next time that we meet, but this is an indication that this will be for seven years. For seven years, this man will think that he's an animal, and he will act accordingly. Now we come to verse 17, and this is a very key verse. In fact, verse 17 is the key verse in the, of the chapter. And we'll get into more detail on this in our next study as well. But look with me now, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. The angel tells Nebuchadnezzar in the dream what the point of the dream and the actions in the dream actually are. All this takes place so that the living, and who are the living? Everyone, everywhere, everyone alive, may know that the Most High, a term that the king himself used of God back in chapter 3, is ruler over the realm of mankind. And it is God who bestows rulership over the earth to whomever he desires, and he sets over it those that he chooses to set over it. God is sovereignly in control. God is the one who determines who is prosperous, who is mighty, and who has authority on this earth. That's the key lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn through all of this, and we already got a glimpse of that back in verse 3 when he acknowledged his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He will come to recognize whose kingdom this really is that he's been made a steward over. Now we'll come to verse 18, and we'll, we'll stop at verse 18 today. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you, he says. The others can't tell me the interpretation. Only you can, Daniel. He knows that Daniel could do it. And once again, he makes the statement that a spirit of the holy gods is in him. And, and whether or not he's truly grasping what that means or not, we, we don't know. But it is a true statement. Daniel had the spirit of God working in him. It was God working through Daniel. And it's remarkable that the king of Babylon seemed to have some recognition of that. He knew that Daniel would take no credit for it himself, but he would give all the glory to his God for his ability to interpret the dream. And again, that's the testimony that Daniel had before the king and really before the world. So here is the dream. And as we get into the interpretation when we meet together, it'll be, it'll be a few weeks, um, I think three weeks from now, but in a few weeks' time, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar is being warned by God. He'll be warned about his pride. And, and 
We do not want to get caught on the wrong side of humility and pride. God doesn't appreciate that, doesn't take kindly to that. This is one example of how God deals with pride. But there have been prideful men throughout time who have challenged God, who have set themselves up as absolute authorities on the earth and have been brought back down to earth by God. Men like Pharaoh, men like Alexander the Great. You could throw men like Napoleon and even Hitler into those examples. All men who have thought more of themselves than they should have and ultimately were removed from their lofty positions. How do I know that? How do I know that God did that? How do I know that God took these men out? That he had anything to do with them? Because God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God sets them up, God takes them down. And they have, and, and they have no room for pride since they are only accomplishing what God has set them up to do. We're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have time. He receives fair warning for his sin and he neglects to do anything about it and he lets his pride overshadow his reason. Let's close in a word of prayer for today. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, again for this, this time that we have together. We thank you for the book of Daniel and we thank you for these examples that we have. We thank you, Lord, for men like Daniel that have proved to be examples in the past and and we thank you for their faithfulness and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study the things that they have done, Lord, and the way that they have served you and honored you. And we pray, Lord, that we could look to them as examples for our own lives. And Lord, we look to men like Nebuchadnezzar um, who are men that did not know you, um, that may have come to know you, Lord, we don't know. Um, but Lord, we look at their lives and we look at the, the failures that they had and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see them as examples of, of ways that we should not be. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to uh, just live our lives for you and to bring honor to you, Lord, in all that we do. And again, I thank you for our time here together, and I pray that you would be with us as we continue to worship you this morning, that you would just uh, be glorified and honored by all that we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.